Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On May 11th, Fidelity Investments Canada hosted Focus 2023, a day-long event for advisors featuring Fidelity's portfolio managers, subject matter experts, and thought leaders. Sessions ran both on stage in Vancouver to a live audience and from our Toronto studio for a crowd of thousands more online. On today's podcast, we're bringing you portfolio manager Don Newman's session from the event who sat down with host Pat Bolland. Don manages two dividend focus funds, the Dividend Fund and Dividend Plus Fund. He discusses how dividend equities have worked well during a volatile market environment and generally how dividends fit overall in an investor's portfolio. In the past, Don has focused on inflation protection and companies with pricing power. This year, his focus is on earnings rather than the total enterprise due to market conditions. He says earnings have held up well so far, and that can be attributed to companies raising prices, seeing stable demand, and improving labor availability. He adds, the current strategy right now is to focus on maintaining a portion of the portfolio with predictable earnings and buying stocks at a reasonable price. Don and Pat also field questions from the live audience, and please note you will hear references to a few slides that were on display in the room. For more podcasts from Fidelity Canada's Focus 2023 event, please subscribe as more podcasts will be released in the coming days. Or for full video replays of the event available soon, advisors should reach out to their Fidelity rep. And investors should head to fidelity.ca slash the upside and sign up for the upside newsletter. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Well, in volatile times, you need somebody to cool things down. Dividends used to do that. Still the case? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think actually, you know, Dan had a nice sort of segue into it. Uh, We've had a period of like sort of a decade where, you know, the, the Fed was trying to get interest, it couldn't get interest rates sort of up, couldn't get inflation up. Um, effectively, your discount rate on the market, there wasn't really a hurdle rate you had to go over. And I think the world has kind of changed to a point where there actually is a real hurdle rate. Um, and for you as an investment advisor, um, one of the most important single things you can do is pr- try to preserve the purchasing power of your client's money. And the fact is, we've got some inflation in the system. Now, it's nice it's come down to five, and we'll let um, you know the CAA team, I think, is uh, Dave and David are up after me. Um, but you know we're still at 5%. So that means just to keep the purchasing power of your client's money the same, you have to be getting sort of a 5% return on your money. And so one of the really nice things I think about dividend investing uh, and dividend funds at this point um, is that you can just say, hey, listen, I've got 
like a 4% yield. And so just by sitting there and getting the yield that's coming off the stocks, I'm taking care of take, taking care of most of the preservation of purchasing power. And on top of that, I've got growth. So where I'd say for most of the decade between you know, 2010, 2020, you really didn't possibly need that bucket in your portfolio. Mm. I think the combination of yield plus growth uh, is now really relevant uh, and very important um, to what you as an investment advisor do. How would you characterize yourself as a money manager? How okay. do you approach yeah, things? So the way people th should think of me um, is really, I, I class myself as a GARP investor. So think of GARP being standing for growth as a reasonable price. Um, with this slight difference is I'm more of where you think about, like Mark is just a pure, you saw him earlier, he's a pure growth guy. Growth at a reasonable price, I'm the reasonable price guy. So I like growth, but the reasonable price is probably more important to me. So I'm really trying to do three things. Um, one is over the long term is outperform the market. And I think that's fairly obvious and we're all trying to do that. Um, what's a little bit different than me is that I tend to do it with a little bit less risk in my portfolios. Um, so I will move the risk up and down in my portfolios probably a little more or a lot more than a lot of my peers. So when things are really cheap and you know things are looking like they're starting to get better, I will torque up the risk. When things are you know more expensive and you know maybe slowing down a little bit, I bring the risk back a little bit. Uh, and the third thing I'm doing. Um, is just really focusing kind of on the total return on your portfolio. So I like to think of um, the way I think of your total return is like, what's your dividend yield? How much can the company grow um, the earnings and then the yield over time? Uh, and what, you know, what multiple you're paying for it. So if I can get like a 4% yield, uh, an 8% growth in earnings or cash flow, uh, and I can hold the multiple the same, that's 12%. And I think over time that'll outperform the market. And then we're doing it um, sort of the fidelity way, and we've got the I think the best analyst group in the in the uh, in the in the country turning over more rocks, finding sort of more ideas, um, and you know that's been the same for the, the entire 20 years I've been here. Can you or do you uh, buy stocks that don't have a dividend, for instance, if it's GARP? Yeah, could. no. So that's the one thing um, I've always said. Listen, my mandate is dividend-paying companies. Uh, and I know there's a bunch of people out there probably that has it in your prospectus. Well, that you can own a certain amount of non-dividend-paying companies. I've always said, listen, this is the mandate. This is what I've told people I'm doing. Um, if there's companies out there that don't pay dividends and they're going ahead and it's causing me to trail a little bit, that's just what it is. Um, this is my mandate. I'm sticking to it. Um, I've told people what I'm doing, and I don't differ from that. Okay. Then what's the difference between your two funds, dividends and dividends plus? Sure. Think of them, they are separate and distinct. So think about dividend plus. Um, if you go back about um, actually 15, 18 years now, probably to the, you know, 2005 or something, um, dividend plus used to actually be our income trust portfolio. Um, so think of it more, and I've tried to keep that sort of the same, think of it more of a, as an infrastructure type fund. Um, so pipelines, utilities, real estate, um, that sort of sort of genre of um, sort of investing tends to be a little more stable. Um, the yields are pretty good. Growth may be a little bit less, but you you, don't, you have a little bit less volatility in the in uh, the earnings in some cases. Dividend fund um, tends to be a little more of a sort of what people would think of as a broad based 
um, dividend portfolio. So there will be um, more, like might be more industrials, or there's occasionally more financials. There's more, um, uh, might be some tech. It's a little more of sort of a diversified port, uh, portfolio. You and I have talked in the past about your themes, the themes yep. for this year, for instance. Uh, where do you stand on, you had three themes, if I recall correctly. Yeah, so they're a little bit different. If you go back to 2022, um, you know, the themes I was, you know, really playing with were thinking about, like, inflation protection because I thought, listen, inflation's starting to rear its, rear its head. You may make sure you need companies with, um, got to have uh, sort of the, the pricing power, the ability to push through price because, like I so say, your costs are going to get, you're going to get hit. Um, interest rates were going up. Um, and it basically, that meant the discount rate on the market was going to go up. And that means, to me, that meant the PE in the market needed to come down last year. And that meant just going and trying to find a lot of lower PE companies that, where if the PE of the market came down, frankly, they weren't going to come down. Um, and some idiosyncratic ideas. I think this year is a little bit different. Um, the P in the markets come down from like 21, it was down at 16, it's now probably about 18. Um, so it's a little bit on the expensive side, but like not, not egregious. Um, I'm a little more focused this year on the E as opposed to the PE, so earnings. So far, we've had a case where actually earnings have held in pretty well. And I think the explanation for that is, is twofold. One, companies took a lot of price at the end of last year, um, which is good. Um, demand is actually holding up okay. You see like unemployment's like three and a half in the US, in, in the US and five in Canada. Um, but labor is starting to become a little bit more available. So people are actually being able to hire people. And then supply chains are starting to get a little bit more fixed. So your costs are actually coming down at the same time you took price. And companies are putting out OK numbers. I think it'll probably, in the back half of the year, my guess is, is you know, Dan talked a little bit about the, the idea of interest rates are now working their way through the system. Um, there is sort of a natural slowdown. The savings rate comes down a little bit. You know, consumer spending um, in the you know, savings um, probably gets absorbed a little bit and people um, it's a little bit have a little bit less so I think you have sort of a natural slowdown and what so what I want to do is this year is sort of focus on the E have a good portion of my portfolio where we kind of know or have a very good idea of what the earnings are going to be and I think we're buying them at reasonable prices so I think I'm insulated there uh, and the other part is just sort of more idiosyncratic so I want to be finding companies um, where is, you know, I think Mark talked about and Dan talked about, um, this is the most forecast recession that like hasn't happened yet. So, but go and find companies that maybe actually are forecasting a recession uh, in their stock price. So the stock price has already come down um, and our earnings estimates actually hasn't changed there. So the multiple has come down enough that I'm pretty comfortable saying, hey, it's already priced in some downside. Um, what if the downside doesn't come? What if we don't have a deep recession? This company could do really, really well. Um, and we get a big upside on, on the upside. So there's a lot of things where our analysts are coming to me and saying, hey, Don, listen, I don't know about the next six months, um, but listen, on a two-year basis, the multiple's now down to a level where you know, it usually trades at 20 times. We're at 15 times right now. Um, I think in two years we can make you know 50 plus percent on the on this stock, but I'm not really sure if the next you know five or ten is up or down. Um, but the outlook looks really good, so I'm starting to pick away at a lot of those. Um, the other aspect is sort of the other side of last year um, is if inflation comes down here. 
Um, let's find some companies that were actually hit by inflation. They were, um, you know, didn't push prices maybe as much. Um, they couldn't. They had contracts that were kind of locked in. Um, and, but as they roll off, you can start pushing it a little bit more. Um, companies where supply chains, was you couldn't get any microchips. So in fact, production demand was huge for these companies last year, but they couldn't actually produce enough. But now that maybe comes a little bit uh, a little bit looser, and you can actually go and produce um, more stuff and meet demand. So companies where the market itself may slow down a little next year, but the companies themselves actually may be able to grow sales um, because supply chains of you know, for example, may have loosened up a little bit. Okay, uh, that's the overview completed. So send in your questions if you have any, because we're going to change the discussion because I want to talk about some sectors. Okay. And I want to start, if you don't mind, yep. with uh, Canadian Bank. Sure. Only because Barclays just came out and mm -hmm. said they're going to have a rough year. Okay. It's, uh, Bank of Nova Scotia, RBC, and uh, TD. Okay. And I saw it in the paper this morning, yep. so I don't know whether so, I'm not yeah. a totally yeah. up to speed. Okay, so the view on Canadian banks. Um, the way I look at it is sort of this way. The positives are um, like Canadian banks usually trade somewhere between like eight and 12 and a half times earnings. You're kind of at nine times right now. So we talked about things that are kind of partially pricing in. The dividends are okay. Uh, and the capital ratios are actually pretty good. Now, having said that, I actually have a fair bit less of Canadian banks than you would have seen in the fund uh, a year or two ago. I think I'm sitting at somewhere in 14 to 15%. I think if you look at the benchmark, it's 20, and a lot of in the dividend benchmarks are you know, 25, 35. So I'm probably a little bit on the lower end, simply because um, think about banks are generally early cycle stocks. So they work really well when the economy is kind of troughing, interest rates start going up, your net interest, NIMS or net interest margins start expanding, you start lending more, lending kind of picks up, um, your capital markets pick up, markets you know, do uh, end up do, doing re really well, uh, and provisions for credit losses coming down. If you look out in sort of the next year or so, you know, some of these pictures are kind of cloudy. You're likely going to see um, provisions for credit losses, which are close to all-time highs. You know, there will be some people that have trouble with mortgages. It's just, it's going to happen because interest mm -hmm. rates, so provisions will come up a little bit. Um, capital markets are a little bit slow right now. Um, net interest margins have been really good, but I think what people, um, you know, may miss a little bit uh, is there's going to be probably over time a little pressure there, um, just as you have... Um, something like deposit beta and what I mean by it kicks in that means like if you think about your savings you go into a savings account right now the bank is kind of paying you nothing you're getting a little bit ripped off on that front um, but if they want to keep deposits and deposits right now are a big deal especially down in the US you're gonna to have to either start paying people a little bit more or what you have is deposit mix shift and what I mean by deposit mix shift is you, you go and say hey listen I have $5,000 sitting in a um, high-yield savings account. It's not getting me very much. You know what? I'd like to switch that over and buy a Fidelity money market account that's giving me north of 4%. Or you go and you buy a, um, you buy a CD or you buy some sort of, uh, um, sort of longer-term deposit that gets you more money. And that's going to put a little bit of pressure on um, the Canadian banks uh, sort of overall NIMS. Um, so, and the other thing is just the economy slows, loan growth slows a little bit. So you're partially pricing it at nine times earnings. I just think at this point in the cycle, you generally favor 
take your money, serve and put it in, you know, other places. And I've moved my financial position down a little bit. And that'll affect the banks. And that's why you're underweight. How do you feel about Canadian large cap energy producers from a dividend perspective? Question from the app. I think from a dividend perspective, they're pretty good. The free cash flow yields on these things are tremendous. Um, it's a sector that, frankly, I, I think Dan talked about it. Um, I was, uh, you know, maybe not quite as big as, as Dan really took a big bet on it. But I had a, lo a lot of energy producers um, back in, like, 2020 when everyone thought, you know, like, you know, oil's at 25, it's going to zero. It briefly did for a day go to zero. Um, but, you know, back to 50, back to 75. As the economy slows, um, generally oil stocks are not a super great place to be. So I probably moved a little bit more into sort of boring pipeline stuff. Um, free cash flow yields are good. Dividends are good. The company's going to buy back a ton of stock. Um, I think it's okay. Um, but they're generally as cyclicals. Um, it's not, it's an area that I haven't been buying lately. Okay. Will you sell a stock? This is back to your overall philosophy. Will you sell a stock if the company cuts the dividend? Ha <laughs> ha. Now recognize um, your hurdle rate that you started discussing yeah, has yeah. now come down, right? Yeah, if you, uh, first of all, we've done a really crappy job as an analyst team if I've still got the stock when it cuts the <laughs> dividend. Um, so that's the job of our analysts. And thankfully, they do a generally pretty good job. Um, if a dividend's at risk, uh, we should know through the payout ratio, through the financials, and that's why all our analysts are doing income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statements quarterly, uh, and coming by my desk. If I'm sitting on a company that's cutting its dividend, um, where it, it's not the case, there are occasional cases where I know the dividend's like too high, and the company's already priced things in, and I may go and actually buy it because the dividend's going from nine to five or something like that. Um, if, I've, if I'm sitting on it while it's cutting its dividend and I've wrote it down, uh, we haven't done a really good job um, as an analyst team and, uh, and me as a portfolio manager. So I really try to avoid those situations. Um, if, the, if the dividend yield is zero, I don't own it. Um, so if in the rare case that might if that would happen, um, then uh, if, if you don't have a dividend, we, I don't have a dividend. We actually haven't seen a lot of cases where dividends had been cut. It's, it's been it's been really rare. It happened for a few of the uh, the energy companies during uh, 2000 and 2020, um, but it's been few and far between, thankfully. Yeah, I should have asked you when we were talking about the banks. What are your thoughts on? Because I know we've discussed yep. this before. What are your thoughts on these U.S. regional banks? And we're talking about Silicon Valley and First yeah, Republic. Yeah, so Silicon and, Valley and whether they yeah. affect Canadian banks too. Yeah, so I'd say the the impact is somewhat limited on Canada. If you think of Silicon Valley Bank, um, it's a very different beast. Um, so they were lending to. It's a huge portion of the venture capital sort of um, startup uh, industry in the U.S. And if that's a wonderful thing if you're in 2019, 2020, 2021, when discount rates are zero, everyone's raising money, the valuations are incredibly high. Then you get to the point where the Fed actually raises rates. And the problem with this is a lot of these companies don't earn any money mm. and they're not going to earn any money for 10 years. If you raise rates from zero to five and you take your discount rate up, it's like a long duration bond. The value of the company just gets jammed lower. And when you do that, um, none of these companies can raise capital because if they do it, they have to do it at a much, much lower valuation. And any of your prior investors get really ticked off and don't want to do it. And so basically the industry was frozen. And so what that changed, Silicon Valley was taking in an enormous amount of money for a few years, and then that flipped on its head. 
So no money was coming into these, these startup companies. Mm -hmm. They were burning cash and they had to actually draw all their money and deposits out of the bank with no money coming in. That became a problem. The company then decided to um, you know, sell a $21 billion book at, a, I think it was a $1.8 billion loss. Um, Silvergate, which is another, um, which is a crypto bank, went bust the night they were trying to do an equity value, an equity raise. It was just a, a, a sort of calamity of badly timed events, and on top, they hadn't had a chief risk officer for an entire year or something like that. Um, not particularly applicable to the Canadian banks, other than um, one of the learnings from this is that deposits can flee very quickly. We've got a lot of technology now that we didn't 10 or 15 years ago, and tens of billions of dollars can come out of a bank really, really fast. Um, the nice thing is where are they all going? They're going to large cap, very stable banks, and that's what we have in, in, in Canada. So the impact of the Silicon Valley Bank and the other banks is actually, there is actually some impact through the economy um, because you know, the, the lifeblood of the US economy is to a certain extent a lot of small banks that are lending into the communities that no longer have the capital to do that. And that will tend to slow down the economy. It has implications for some commercial real estate stuff where they are big, are, are big lenders. Um, but the implications for the Canadian banks um, really not too much. Um, I think deposits have been, uh, have been sort of relatively sticky, um, but you it will push the deposit beta and the switch into higher yielding savings um, afford a little bit, which I think will put a little bit of pressure on NIMS. Okay, so I heard an argument recently that this might be an opportunity, the same way Morgan stepped up and bought First Republic. Mm -hmm. uh, BMO did it many, many years ago when they yep. bought Harris Bank down in, and got them exposure to the United States and they went from there kind of thing. The question becomes capital ratios. How much do you want to put, now TD just tried and they couldn't get one done. Um, so they're kind of in the sidelines for now. The question is, does anyone, if you could do it and there was someone really on sale and it fit in your footprint uh, and your capital ratio wasn't impacted mm. too much. But I think um, with the regulator in Canada is continuing to push, push capital ratios higher. Uh, and it's, you know, it's been, you know, 10, now it's 11, 11 and a half, and are we moving to 12? So I think um, some of the companies, if you could get a really good deal that was in your footprint that wouldn't impact your capital too much, there's an opportunity there. Um, but I think that certainly a lot of the banks, especially in Canada right now, with the regulator pushing up cash capital ratios are very cognizant of that. I think that may prevent um, uh, sort of aggressive buying down the US right now. Dividend Plus is, uh, used to have a lot of exposure to REITs. Yep. Uh, and what are you doing on REITs these days? Yeah, so I've been having to dance around that for uh, oh, a little bit. because No, no, <laughs> not, not the question. Um, but certainly there's been basically two things because um, it's, it's been a little bit of a, a minefield for the last year or so. Um, the, but based on two things. Um, one, uh, interest rates. Now, if you'd asked me if we'd done this about a year ago, I would have probably told you interest rates you know, at zero probably needed to a year and a half ago, like two and a half, sort of a natural growth rate of the economy probably would be a good rate. Now, I, so I got the direction right, but the ability of the the Fed, I didn't think you'd see the Bank of Canada at four and a half and the Fed at five. Like inflation, um, you know, the Ukraine happening and inflation remaining sticky for as long as it had, um, you know, I think came as a surprise to a lot of people. 
The first order impact on that is it just means you cannot have real estate companies that trade at three and a half cap rates. And all that means is that's just the discount you're rating, you're using on um, valuing real estate companies. Now, it's fine when interest rates are zero because you're getting a spread, but if your cost of debt goes to five and a half or 6%, you can't buy anything at three and a half percent. So the whole sector has had to kind of re-rate out. Um, the second impact um, has really been um, the lack of kind of return to work. Um, right now, you've got one sector in particular um, is U.S. and you know uh, in Canada, and that's the office sector. Uh, it's under a lot of pressure right now. Um, you've got I think across Canada, it's 17 to 18 percent vacancy. Uh, in U.S., you know, you're talking 15 to 20 percent vacancy. These companies are highly levered, um, and when you're highly levered, demand is going down and you've got a lot of vacancy, uh, and uh, companies are really, and I was talking to Jeff Moore out there, and that's one of the areas where credit spreads are like 100 percentile. Like, it's a difficult sector. Now, where I think the opportunity will come in real estate is painting, painting everything with the same brush. There are sectors uh, in, in, in real estate that actually really haven't been impacted that much, uh, but valuations have come down. Like industrial is actually really strong. A lot of these companies have 20% sort of mark to markets. That means rents that they are charging, um, the market rates are still 20% higher and they can, they're going to earn more money for years to come just rolling forward those rents. Um, you think about multifamily, like the, I think in the U.S., even though it's going to slow a little bit in the next year, like rents are still up 9% year over year. In Canada, we've got hundreds of thousands of immigrants coming in, and they're not all going to be buying two or three million dollar homes. They're probably, a lot of them are going to be living in reasonably priced apartments. Um, so that sector is kind of going to be supported by, um, by immigration. You, you think about it, like niche areas like um, uh, going as like seniors housing. No one wanted to put their parents in a seniors house to, uh, housing uh, in um, uh, sort of rental during uh, during COVID. It just like wasn't the place to be, but now the world is kind of normalized. Maybe that's a place to be. Um, so storage is kind of is kind of okay. Um, there's like there's a number of niche um, sort of sort of like niches in the real estate market where fundamentals are actually fine, um, but you hear about commercial real estate being bad and bad. It's it's mainly sort of the office sector, and where I'm sort of excited is like if if everything gets painted with the same brush, I can go in and pick away these companies that are actually going to grow at reasonable valuations um, for the first time in a lot of years. So it's pick and choose. Yep. So good for this question that came from the app. From a positioning perspective, are you starting to be more offensive? Ah, um, so it's a little probably a little bit different than Mark. Uh, and maybe a little, <laughs> you, a little bit different think? than Dan, yeah. Uh, no, I had lunch with uh, both guys, but uh, uh, so, and I'm kind of like, I'm sort of, you know, maybe um, in the middle. So I mentioned uh, the idea of trying to find some stability where like, I wanna know where the earnings is. So you've got the, the baseline, which is, you know, fairly stable, but also companies, you're seeing that where, you know, the analysts are coming and saying, well, on a two-year basis, I think we got 50%, 60% upside in this thing. Um, and they are, they have some cyclicality to them, but I've been buying some industrials and um, it's like, okay, well, they're down 30% from their highs. Their multiples are where they usually trough out. We're not in a recession, but the multiples have already um, replaced, sort of already reflected it. So I want to be thinking about 
you know, some stability, but also what's, what is two years from now? What does 25 look like? What can you earn three years out? And if you can tell me, listen, I'm gonna, I think I can get a 60% return in a two, three year basis, that starts to become really attractive. So uh, it's a little more sort of barbelled and nuanced and it's sort of like idiosyncratic ideas. I wanna be going in lightly, not super heavy yet, because there may be a little bit of downside if things slow down, but that just means my upside when things do recover, gets really, really good. And I don't wanna be sitting on a total defense portfolio um, when we, if, you know, if the economy either doesn't go into recession or in fact is, um, uh, you know, comes out fairly quickly, these things are going to really rip and I want to be making money on the other side. Are you restricted to North America or do you have international? Nope. Or No, yeah. uh, like I've recently been buying some, I can go international, I've recently been buying like some, you know, like a European pharma company we really like that's been discounted that, you know, had had a few patent cliffs this year. So it means this year is not awesome, but next year it starts to grow again. Um, some European staples, Dan, Dan mentioned a little bit uh, cheaper than uh, uh, the defense in North America, uh, sort of good, good place to be, but you got, you got sort of like sell to the world. So I'm not restricted. It doesn't tend to be a huge portion of the portfolio, but we've got a wonderful team over in Europe and around the world. And if the ideas are good, uh, they can go in the portfolio. Life companies. Yep. You and I had a great discussion last time about life insurance companies and how they work in a changing interest rate environment. Oh, geez. You have to get our life insurance. out. It, it, it has become very, very complicated on uh, life insurance. Um, I basically put down um, to the fact that I've generally over the last year or two preferred property and casualty companies, um, which have been in a hard market and all hard market means is that rates are going up. And if you're a homeowner or a car owner, you know it, you're not paying less for your home insurance. You're not paying less for your car insurance. Um, a lot of these companies have been uh, sort of beneficiaries from in inflation. The price of replacing things goes up. They replace. I've sort of looked at life insurance um, as higher interest rates are generally good, um, but they sort of act a little bit more um, as asset managers at this point. Um, and uh, therefore they have a fair bit of market sensitivity. And I think, uh, you know, I'm sort of of the view, listen, the market, at least if you look at the US, the market's 18 times earnings. Uh, if someone came and pitched it to me as an individual stock, I'd say, yeah, there could be upside, but it's not like super, attractive 18 times earnings, a 1.7% dividend yield, and not a lot of growth. So I'm not sure where, I'm not making a big call in the market either way, um, but if I wanna sort of own something that's sort of market sensitive, I wanna have a little more buffer there. So I'd rather own um, uh, a little bit less on the life insurance front, which is market sensitive, when I'm not, I don't have a really strong view of the market going a lot higher. I put Dan on the spot to see, ask him where he saw himself by the end of the year kind of thing and what investors should expect. Same question to you, and, and particularly in light of you know, any pending recession, is there an opportunity that you think you see? I'm pretty comfortable with it. Uh, if things do go down, um, I've got a little bit of liquidity that I can certainly add. Um, so I'm not, Sort of, I'd put the same thing as Dan. I, over the next six months, he generally, I don't have a good feel for where things uh, necessarily go. I think the, the economy will slow down. Is that priced in? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, but I, what I do think um, is that um, you probably, at least for the near term, have a little bit of sticky inflation. Um, and that means um, that a good dividend yield plus some growth uh, in this kind of environment where you know the economy is probably a little bit slower 
um, means that you cover inflation um, and you get a little bit of growth that uh, can out outpace that and sort of uh, add to the purchasing power of your clients. Uh, and that's why I think it's a reasonable bucket to be in at this point. Okay. Uh, all these people have clients yep. who would be looking potentially at dividends. Where do dividends fit for an investor in their portfolio overall? What's the argument that you've been putting forward for years? For years? Um, well, I think it's more important than ever. Uh, and uh, like I, I think, you know, as I said, the market's a little bit uncertain right now. So I think if you go and have you know, a combination of, and say you've got Mark, you've got Dan, who's the best value guy in the business, uh, and then you've got a portion of your portfolio that's in really good dividend paying stocks um, that cover inflation and give you growth, um, you know, if you can get a 4% yield and you can get, you know, 8, 9% uh, sort of growth in earnings, um, even if it's a little bit less than that, if the economy slows down, um, that covers inflation. Um, it gives your clients a, um, hopefully a pretty good risk adjusted uh, return. So having that sort of stability yield that really matters in a world where inflation's still, uh, you know, a little bit on the high side, even if it is falling, um, is a bucket that I think is now more of a must-have um, than it probably has been for, you know, the last sort of decade or so. You didn't anywhere in there say downside protection? Does it afford you that? Yeah. Or is that an oversell? No, well, I think based on what I do, um, you know, historically, and you can you know, look at the, 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 um, the stats, generally the you, the companies tend to have a little more stability to them. They generate a little more cash flow. Uh, and the way I run the funds uh, is generally with a little rest, less risk than the overall market. So over time, you, you do get the, you get the downside protection um, with the good yield. And then over time, um, you tend to do fairly well on the upside as well. Good. Don, thank you so much. Yep. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.